This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. We pay far too little attention to happiness as a society. I think we ignore it. I think we pay lots of attention to what is bad, what is negative. And so having a day in which people focus on, hey, what makes me feel happy? Why is happiness important? I think is really important. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. We call it Llama. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, the pillars of longevity, as I see them, sleep, diet, exercise, are all important. But what about your mood and your level of happiness? Could that factor into how long you will enjoy a healthy and fulfilled life? What if happiness is not under control. You're the kind of person who just tends to be more melancholy. Is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, my guest is Professor Catherine Sanderson, a psychologist and author of the recently published book, The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health and, and here's the magic word, longevity. Dr. Sanderson, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk. Well, it's very good to see you. How is your mindset today? My mindset today is good. I flew in from Massachusetts where it's freezing, so I enjoyed the walk over today and the sunshine, and I feel great. Which goes to a key point, actually. The weather affects our mindset. Absolutely. And that's something that we often underestimate, not just the weather, but just spending time in nature is such a powerful influence on our mindset. And I guess when you're traveling, actually having good weather, a nice environment to look forward to, also affects just how you feel about things and your, your level of happiness on that day. Absolutely. And the opportunity for me to be able to literally walk outside where it's, you know, 15 degrees or something right now in Massachusetts is a real lift to mood for all of us. So we are going to talk much more about the role of happiness in our lives. And it just so happens that Wednesday of this week is International Day of Happiness. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of these days. There are so many of them that they seem to lose meaning to me. But let's embrace it. Before we do that, let's just talk about you, how you got to this stage in your career, where you went to school, and really what made you interested in this area? Sure. So I'm a professor of psychology at Amherst College, and my research for a long time has focused on factors that predict health and well-being, factors that predict relationship satisfaction. But I would actually say the real reason I'm here is that I'm not a naturally happy person. So there are people in the world, you might be one of them, I'm sure many of your listeners are some of them, who are naturally happy, who are genetically blessed and come by it easily. I'm somebody who actually has a tendency to be anxious, to be depressed, to ruminate. And so as I started reading more and more of the research on the factors that influence happiness, I realized I could actually do something about it. And I've really changed how I think, how I behave in light of the research showing that what we do really matters. That's interesting you should say that. And it's why I made a point of saying that you might have a melancholy personality in the introduction because I've spoken to other people, guests on this podcast, who say that they tend more towards that sort of melancholy demeanor. It doesn't mean to say that it's it's a negative. It's, I suppose, the way that they were born, the way that you were born. 
Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you made that point because I believe that so many people think happiness is about luck. Did you win the lottery? Are you genetically blessed? Did these great things happen to you? And if you're not one of those people who those things happen to, then you sort of feel, well, I'm out of luck. You know, that I'm not going to be happy. And what's so important for people to realize is that there are people who have a head start on finding happiness, but we can all do things no matter where we naturally start that will make us feel better. And is it something, therefore, that's simply in our genes? Are we pre-programmed to have a certain kind of uh, happiness level in our lives? So the most current research suggests, yes, that about half of our happiness is, in fact, due to our genes, that there are people who are truly genetically blessed. They have a head start. But what's important to recognize then is it means the other 50 percent we control. And that's the part that I think is so important. And I, I will stress once again that it, it isn't necessarily seen as, as a bad thing. And the fact that you might have, you might not be one of the, these exuberant sort of personalities and characters, but it doesn't mean to say that you are unhappy or indeed uh, destined to be unsuccessful. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to recognize that having some adversity in your life actually can provide some tools to finding happiness, that people who have experienced two to six sort of pretty negative events, getting divorced, getting fired, you know, having a serious illness or injury, that those people actually report higher levels of happiness than people who've had nothing bad happen to them at all. And what the research suggests is that experiencing some adverse events gives you coping skills and teaches you resilience, which then lets you be happier when subsequent things arise in your life. And also there's a theory that a certain amount of, and I think this is what you're saying, a certain amount of stress in your life. And that, that could be digestive stress. It could be the kinds of foods that you're, you're eating that are more difficult to digest that puts a certain stress on your system. In the same way as, as what you're talking about, some difficulties during the day, interrelationships, whatever it happens to be that might put you under a certain amount of stress and may not make you super happy in the moment in the long run. I think this is what you're arguing could actually be potentially good for us. Absolutely. And the reality is bad things do happen to all of us. You know, cars break down. Stuff happens. <laughs> stuff happens. And so the challenge is when that stuff happens, what do we do? So let's uh, let's backtrack a little bit more then in terms of your research and uh, the your impetus to write a book called The Positive Shift. Tell me what your research has told you. My book describes some of my own research, but it really describes a giant body of research, certainly not my own by any stretch. And what I think is important to recognize is that we are learning more and more about the scientific underpinnings of happiness as they're frankly advances in how we study it. So some of the most exciting exciting research, and this is not my own, but some of the most exciting research, I think, is looking at MRI data. So looking at patterns of brain activation. And we've only had the technology to do that really within the last five to 10 years in terms of being able to understand that. And I think that's so important for people to recognize because a lot of the early research on happiness, frankly, was self-report. So people writing on a survey, you know, how happy do you feel on a one to seven or something? And that provides some information. But now that we can look at the pairings of that self-report data with what's happening at a genetic level, what's happening neurologically, it provides greater insight into the link between happiness and mindset, 
happiness and health and so on. So this could be one of those, I've taken part in similar things myself, a clinical study where you're you're quite literally having the MRI, you're laid there flat on your back, looking maybe at a screen, you can hear the clattering of the MRI, and you're looking at images, you're looking at photographs, looking at at an aggressive scene, looking at what you might perceive as a happier scene. And obviously, the MRI is is therefore explaining, uh, in, in scientific terms, what's actually physically happening in your brain as you see these images. Exactly. And so one of my favorite studies that I talk about in the book is they bring people in, put them in an MRI machine, and then they show them different pictures. And all of the pictures are of some sort of outdoor scene, and they're all visually appealing, a range of colors, you know, sky, clouds, et cetera. They're all visually appealing. But half of them are pictures of an urban city skyline, and half of them are pictures of a rural nature scene. And what they find is even though these are both pictures of outside settings, even though they're both visually appealing, when people are looking at the urban city scene, they show lots of brain activation. Their brain is firing. It's active. It's processing. When people are looking at the rural nature scene, their brains are relaxed and calm, like they're meditating or sleeping. And so we started our conversation today talking about the role of nature. And that study provides really profound evidence of how just looking at a picture of nature in an MRI machine actually changes patterns of brain activation. That's really interesting. And I suppose what we can learn from this is that we can adapt our lives accordingly with this knowledge. I suppose, just to be devil's advocate here, some people might say, well, I love city life. You know, I, I'm not that inclined to go out and climb, climb a mountain because I, I actually get energized by being in a city. We're not all the same, are we? No. And, and it's really interesting to see if there are individual individual differences in variation, right? So people who are more used to city life is that they've adjusted to it. So it's no longer activating in the same way. And that's an example of probably the next line of research looking at this, right? So and you do that in your book, you're talking about a a shift, a a positive shift. Let's talk about the kind of advice that you give people, because it isn't that easy to change. We can change physical things about our lives. We can change how often we go for a walk or a run or go to the gym or, or what we eat. But this is Uh, something that's a little difficult to pinpoint in terms of how to change day to day what we're doing to affect our mindset. Yes. And and I actually think the most important first step is to be aware of exactly what you just said, that we have some control over our thoughts, just like we have control over what do I eat for dinner and do I go to the gym and do I put away my cell phone before bed or something, that we also have control over our thoughts. So I think the first step is recognizing that we have some control over how we think about things, how we conceptualize things. And then the second step is making a change in the kind of thinking we do. There's a wonderful book that I didn't write, but uh, it's called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's a fascinating book written by a neuroscientist at Stanford. And what it describes is zebras only show physiological reactivity when they're being chased by a lion, like when they're about to die. Humans, of course do that all the time, Mm. right? I have a lot of emails in my inbox. I have bills to pay. I have a job interview. I have a blind date. I'm late for a plane, you know, whatever it is. And so part of it is being aware of, hey, you know what? I have control over how I react to this. And many of us show a physiological stress reaction, even in cases that are not at all life or death like the zebra. 
You mentioned emails in inboxes, and it's maybe a timely uh, occasion to, to mention this. We're just talking in the wake of the Facebook problems where everything went down affecting, well, everything, but most things seem to go down affecting posting onto Facebook and, and Instagram as well. I've got to say, and I was thinking about this, I honestly didn't miss it for 24 hours. It, it didn't really affect my life, but certainly looking online how other people responded to this, you would almost think it was the end of, of the world. What does that tell you? People are so dependent on social media. And it's such a reliance that we have. It's part of a day-to-day life. And many people are spending a giant amount of time on their phones. They're checking Twitter. They're checking Instagram. They're checking Facebook. And so when all of a sudden it's taken away, it feels terrible. But what's interesting is the research really shows that Putting away your phone is good for your psychological well-being, is good for your physical well-being. And in fact, you talk about this in the book, The Hazards of of Technology, because it just engulfs our entire – and for for good reasons many of the time. We couldn't be doing this podcast without the amazing technology that we're surrounded with right now. But – Often it becomes overwhelming, doesn't it? It does. And I think it's extremely important for people to recognize that we can have some of the benefits of technology, but we can also pay a price for that. And so figuring out ways to limit access, to limit amount of time spent on it, to readjust when we find that spending time on social media is making us feel worse is really important. And of course, there's the effect of social media of actually making us, in quotes, unhappy because we're not living up to what we see our friends, colleagues, associates doing on in social media and seemingly boasting about how happy they are in their lives. Well, and the reality is many people post mostly only the good on social media. In fact, you edit the bad out, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, including photos, right? You you present photos of yourself looking your best. Uh, you describe successes that you've had, not failures that you've had. And so again, when people are looking at social media, their own life often just doesn't measure up. Is that most people, do you think? Do we just need to acknowledge and accept that most of us are, are quite ordinary and there isn't a, a high every day like you might think if you look at social media that some people are experiencing? I mean, the, the idea that you can now follow through the day that the snapshots of someone's life, which to me, I mean, the effort of doing that, frankly, I mean, I, I do it a little bit but not to the extent that a lot of people do it. And you you could be excused for looking at what people do sometimes and think, what an extraordinary life, if only I could live up to that. Right. And I think um, it's really important to recognize that when we're looking at people's social media, we're not looking at their life. We're looking at what they choose to share. And so we might be looking at, you know, wonderful successes professionally, personally, fabulous vacations, but they're editing it. And so having that self-awareness of what they're choosing to share doesn't represent their entire life. And we often, you know, sort of oddly forget that. I mentioned uh, International Day of Happiness and that, that well, let's embrace it. Is, is it something that you, just drawing attention to the issue, is it something that you think will do some good? So what I believe is that we pay far too little attention to happiness as a society. I think we ignore it. I think we pay lots of attention to what is bad, what is negative, anxiety, depression. And so having a day in which people focus on, hey, what makes me feel happy? Why is happiness important? I think it's really important. But as you said, it shouldn't just be a day, right? And so my hope is that the International Day of Happiness isn't a day. It's 
a start of a new habit. Like many people say, oh, you know, I'm going to make my New Year's resolutions. My hope is that the International Day of Happiness will be a day for people to say, I'm going to make some happiness resolutions and I'm going to do two or three things differently in my life moving forward from this day on. Not just this day, but from this day on. And could one of those things just be to smile more? Absolutely. And that's cheap and it's easy and it's good for happiness and it's good for health. And no, don't just explain the the science of smiling. Clearly, it it affects other people because they are responding to your smile. But there's a certain sort of self uh, uh, gratitude there as well because you you feel better. You do, and and so what's so interesting is that we think of smiling as reflecting how we feel, but the reality is that smiling, the act of smiling, can change how we feel. And the, that's the physical act. The act, the physical act of smiling. There's a really clever study that I describe in the book um, in which they brought in people and had them hold chopsticks in their teeth in one of three facial expressions, a neutral expression, a slight smile, or a big beaming smile. Then while they held these chopsticks in their teeth, they put their hand in a bucket of freezing cold ice water (laughs) and they said, keep it there as long as you can. And what they found was that the people who held the smile, the big beaming smile, kept their hand in the bucket of water significantly longer. So it actually, the mere act of smiling changed how their body responded to pain. That's very interesting. I suppose anyone who's been through a a surgical procedure or a medical procedure, maybe when you're not anesthetized, how you could call it mindset maybe, but attitude in that moment, and that could be smiling, can actually get you through that difficult five seconds when they're putting a needle into your body or whatever it happens to be. It it is proof that that it actually works. It it absolutely is. And that's a really important example of how very subtle things can, in fact, do things like speed up our recovery from surgery. Really? Yes. For example, they've shown that people with a positive attitude – get out of the hospital faster, need lower levels of pain medication. Uh, They've shown that people who have a room with a view of nature in the hospital also recover faster. So small little things in our environment can have a major impact on recovery, even from surgery. You do hear that a lot, especially when people are fighting extremely difficult diseases, medical problems, cancer, one of the worst, obviously, that that positive attitude actually can, it might not cure you, but it can help you through the moment. And it probably works by increasing your immune system. So your immune system is a little bit stronger, lets you better tolerate adverse experiences. Now, I think it is really important to recognize that this does not mean that people with a positive attitude can cure themselves from cancer, you know, et cetera. So we can't overstate it, but it does mean that all else being equal, having a positive attitude really pays off. And gratitude is is something else that I I hear a lot about these days. People will keep a a gratitude journal. There are uh, bespoke online digital gratitude journals where it, it, you know, basically you just answer the questions and it supposedly makes you feel good at the end of the day? Many people go to sleep at night thinking about their to-do list and the problems they're facing. And it's no wonder that we have an epidemic of sleep deprivation in our society, right? Can you imagine a worse way to go to sleep? And scientific research has shown simply writing down two or three things that you're grateful for in your life right now, you know, not things when I win the lottery, when I retire, you know, when I get married, whatever. The real world. The real world right now actually helps you feel better 
in terms of psychological well-being, just writing down two or three things every night before you go to bed. It's something about letting go, isn't it? Letting go before you go to sleep. You might have the world's problems on your shoulders, daytime at work, in the office, in the home, whatever, but it's, it's kind of setting things in context. Absolutely. Perspective taking. Yeah, exactly. And also, and, and this is probably related to that, but uh, relationships with, with other people and, and how you deal with other people. We've talked about smiling. Gratitude comes into that as well. But uh, it's huge, isn't it? Uh, how we bounce off other people, how they bounce off us. Relationships are the number one best predictor of our happiness. And I think what's important for people to recognize is that it doesn't matter how many relationships you have. So it's not, you know, having a giant social network. What matters is quality over quantity. So having a small number of relationships with people, and they can be anyone. It can be a, a romantic partner, a, a friend, a spouse, you know, a colleague, whatever. But having relationships in which you feel you can be authentic in which you can have meaningful conversations, that's our very best predictor of happiness. And can you, if you are in a relationship or work very closely with a certain individual, can you change the attitudes of, of those people to, to match your own? Or is, is that dangerous territory? Well, happiness is contagious. So when we spend time with other people who are happy, it actually elevates our mood. And so people who are happy uh, can actually have ripple effects in a community. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. And something else I notice, uh, and maybe this is a bad thing, uh, of people trying to impose on others th- their attitudes. So let's say you've got a, an outwardly very happy, ebullient sort of personality, and you, you're alongside someone who tends to be a little lower key. And you, you might try to sort of G that person up. I wonder sometimes if that produces negative results because people don't want to be cajoled into something that doesn't come naturally. Well, and I think it's really important that people understand that happiness is not one size fits all, that there are people who find happiness in reading a book. There are people who find happiness in meditating. There are people who find happiness in volunteering in their community. So what makes you happy, what makes me happy may not be the same thing. And what's important is for people to recognize what brings happiness to them. And for some people, as you note, happiness is more of an extroverted sort of outgoing, intense physiological arousal state. For other people, happiness might be more like contentment and relaxation. And that's all good. We've used both terms. We've talked about mindset and we've talked about happiness. And and they're not the same thing, really, are they? How would you define mindset? So mindset is really how we think about things. So mindset is about our thoughts. And we have characteristic thought patterns in which we see the world in lots of different ways. Right. And is it something that we can easily change? Or are we born with a predisposed mindset? So it's something that we can change, but probably not easily. So so yes, it is changeable. But 
not without effort. So I look at mindset as sort of like metabolism. There are people who have better and worse metabolisms. My brother uh, can eat whatever he wants at any moment and will never gain a single ounce. That is not the case for me. And so he has a faster metabolism. Similarly, there are people who go through life and have a really positive, optimistic mindset. That's also not me. But people who don't come by it naturally can work on changing their mindset, on adopting a more positive mindset. So change, yes, but with effort. It's not magic. It's not easy. Now, I mentioned at the start that obviously this podcast is all about human longevity and what we can do to live a longer, maybe happier life. It's not about lifespan. It's about health span, living long and, and enjoying those years of, of optimum health. And uh, I was fascinated. It's what caught my eye seeing the word longevity at the end of your title. Is there scientific proof and evidence that having a happy mindset, if you want to phrase it like that, helps you in terms of longevity? Absolutely. And and there's data from all over the world suggesting that that is true. And that includes data in which they've examined people's, you know, for example, nuns' diary entries in which they've looked at nuns' diary entries when they were in their 20s and how much sort of positive mood and positive affect did they describe. And then they've looked at these same women and how old they were when they died. So that's just one example of the link in which nuns who wrote really positive things lived longer than nuns who didn't. And they've done studies again and again in lots of different ways, facial expressions on professional baseball players' rookie baseball cards. Men whose rookie baseball cards had big beaming smiles lived longer than men whose rookie baseball cards had a flat expression. And all of this data takes into account other things. So family history, do you smoke, you know, BMI, et cetera. I was just about to say yeah. that. Obviously, we, we die of multiple factors. Uh, and it's not just uh, in terms of happiness. It, it could be physical condition. It could be the environmental things that you're exposed to during your life. But there is tangible evidence, you say, that that's happiness, that, that mindset plays into that. Absolutely. And so statistically, they've controlled for lots of other variables that, of course, do have an impact on longevity. But even above and beyond those effects, people who have a positive mindset live longer lives. What have you, and I often ask this question of guests on this podcast, in terms of your own life and the research that you've done and the conclusions that you've reached, have you adopted some of that knowledge and changed the way that you live your life? Absolutely. And again, as I described earlier, I'm not somebody who's naturally happy. So I will say that the most profound difference for me is that I had a very, very big tendency for really most of my life to overreact to things. So bad things would happen and I would freak out. So I'll give you two quick examples. In December, my laptop died. Died. I lost everything, including a book manuscript I was working on. That will be devastating to it, me. It was devastating. Yeah. And I was pretty much like, well, I guess I'm going to get a new computer. And my husband was like, you're taking this very well. I mean, you lost your manuscript. And I said, well, if it was good, it's going to come back to me. And and I just, you know, I let it go. Literally yesterday, as I was flying out here, our car died. Uh. So my husband couldn't get to work. I land and he texts me and he's like, uh, we need to buy a new car. So it's expensive. It's not ideal. It's not something we planned on. And I said, you know, 
it's lucky that we are in a financial situation in which you know that's possible for us to contemplate that there are people who that really wouldn't be possible for them to spontaneously have to you know find new transportation and those are examples of things that for many for most of my life I would have been just lost and, you know, in a ball on the floor crying. And, you know, these things happen and I have so much to be blessed about in my life that, you know, things that are not the lion chasing me life and death, I, I've gotten really good at letting go. Yeah. I, hopefully you've learned the lesson about backing up and <laughs> cloud storage and all of that. Dropbox. Yes, Dropbox.com. Exactly. That's what I use. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that actually helps. It does. Just knowing that you can close that computer at night, knowing it's all there. That's it's right. somewhere. I don't really know That's where it right. is, but it's there and it's yes. safe. That's good. <laughs> Also on the subject of, of longevity, I'm often curious in terms of, I've got a, obviously a particular interest in this, but in terms of your aspirations, your own longevity, your own old age, do you have, do you think about it? Do you have goals in mind and, and especially relating to the kind of work that you do? Yes. So I think what I've gotten really good at doing is thinking about how I want to spend my life. So my mom died about 15 years ago and she died of cancer and young. She was 57. And she died four months after diagnosis. And so it was just a whirlwind of, you know, loss. So I turned 50 a few months ago. And it really struck me, what do I get enjoyment from? And how do I want to spend however much time I have? Because the reality is, None of us know. None of us know. Right? Yeah. And so I make a big point of trying to say, I want to spend more time at the beach. I want to see Pompeii. You know, I mean, so things that I want to do, and I am very focused on what those are. So you have a bucket list? I do. In fact, I was at a dinner last night, and as sort of an icebreaker, I had everybody at the table go around and say, What's on your bucket list? Oh, how interesting. And I'm telling you, it was really great. So, and, and it was so interesting to learn. For many people, it was travel. But for other people, somebody was like, I want to be a rancher and like have animals and like land. And, and it was such a great way to get to know people. Did you find that people chose a realistic ambitions or it was just, you know, pie in the sky? No, no. People were very, I mean, and some people were like tangible. You know, I want to see Thailand and we're going in August. I mean, it was very tangible. No one was like, you know, I want to have a, you know, an Oscar or something. Maybe that's not pie in the sky. Or in this time, most people would say that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Did did everyone have a bucket list? Had everyone thought about it? Yes. But what was interesting is that there was one man who said, you know, I used to have a bucket list that was this long and he had, you know, sort of held his hands far apart. And then he said, and I've been crossing things off and crossing things off. So now it's smaller and smaller. And then I said, well, you got to just add some more, right? You just got to keep adding. So, but he had been deliberately sort of knocking things off in a really impressive way. And let me, I'm just guessing that most people around that table were older people. Yes, because my experience is that if you're in your 20s or even 30s, this isn't something you think. I mean, I, th- I wish people did think a little bit earlier in life about their longevity and how you can uh, adopt different behaviors during your life to perhaps uh, maximize your, your health in latter years. But uh, generally, people don't think about it. So I have never given that any thought, and I think you are so right, and I am going to make it my mission now to bring up this conversation with my college students. That will be interesting. Right? Yes. Very interesting to see what they say. And I, and I frequently ask the question and very often just get shrugged shoulders. Well, don't think about it. Deal with it when it happens. It's going to happen one day. But it's not my – And you know, remember back to your 20s and your 
early 30s maybe you do have other things to worry about generally right but uh, it would be nice if people just a little bit earlier could start thinking about these things sure I guess one thing that does give you happiness is holding a book in your hand having sweated over it for months and years and, and finally it is there the positive shift am I right it makes you actually feel good you've achieved something it, it does it makes me feel really good and it makes me feel good in part because I talk about happiness a lot I mean I wrote the book because I speak regularly to corporate and public audiences about happiness and what people would do afterwards is they would come up and they would say I loved that message I need to have more happiness do you have a book and I always was like no I don't have a book you know etc and and I wrote the book because of that and and my hope is I'm I'm super proud of having written the book I love the book but my real hope is that the book can do some good is that people will take the lessons the things that you and I have talked about and they'll go out and they'll apply them in their lives in some way. And that's what I'm really hoping. Well, I really hope so. It's, it's an excellent book. The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health and Longevity. Thank you very much. If people want to follow your work more closely as it goes forward, uh, where should they go online? So I have a website, which is sandersonspeaking.com. And you can find information about my current work and see videos of talks I've given, etc. So sandersonspeaking.com. Thanks. Yeah, I've been there. It's a good website. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk about happiness. Been really interesting. And uh, just a reminder there are many ways you can listen to us. If you want to see all the options, take a look at our website at llamapodcast.com. That's double L A M A podcast.com. We recently launched a stream at Radio Public. You can listen via their app or the web at radiopublic.com. Just search for Live Long and Master Aging, click on our logo. And there we are. And we're always grateful to read your reviews of the podcast. You can rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. I read every single word and much appreciate your thoughts. And, and finally, in social media, you can find us at Llama Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Wherever you find us, many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.